Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume here in the fall of 2020 in our home city of New York. And we're excited uh, to welcome our guests today to the SALT conference uh, in September. But that's to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited to bring you the latest in our series of SALT talks covering the digital assets or crypto space and how it's also starting to bleed into things like FX markets and commodities markets as well. Uh, with David Mercer, who is the Chief Executive Officer at LMAX Group, which is a global financial technology company headquartered in the UK and the leading independent operator of institutional execution venues for FX and cryptocurrency trading. Following a successful management buyout in 2013, David has built LMAX Group into a key player in both the traditional capital markets and the crypto trading industry. Uh, with a global client base and offices in nine countries, LMAX Group was recently valued at $1 billion following a minority stake sale to J.C. Flowers and Company. David's a former city banking executive and currency specialist. He's also an outspoken industry commentator and long-term champion of the UK's technology sector, as well as a passionate supporter of entrepreneurship. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm, also with uh, heavy investments into the digital asset space. Skybridge was the first 40-act fund, the first fund of hedge funds in the U.S. to make a substantial investment into Bitcoin in November of 2020. Uh, and, and Skybridge continues its foray into the digital asset space. So I'm sure a lot for Anthony and David to talk about today. Uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Uh, John, thank you. Well, first of all, David, congratulations on an amazing career. Uh, but like me, you started in traditional finance. So the, my first question is, tell us a little bit more about your background that enabled you to expand the universe of your thinking and to move into the business at LMAX, the one that you're currently in. Hi, Anthony. Uh, hi, John. Hi, everyone. Well, first of all, I'd like to say um, not too early with the congratulations. I think I'm just getting started. We're just getting started. I think everything to date has been like an undergraduate degree. So, but to put it in a picture, I mean, I guess three chapters of my career to date, I, each chapter is about a decade long, a decade in investment banking, just learning my trade, learning capital markets, everything from the middle office to the front office, fixed income emerging markets, um, learning a lot about credit and sort of the swings and roundabouts of capital markets, the boom and bust, if you like, of capital markets. Then a decade outside of it, trying to learn how to be an entrepreneur, trying to learn how to run a business. Because sometimes when you're in one of these ivory towers of investment banking, it's hard to, everyone else does the work for you. It's hard to actually understand what it takes, you know, to, to run a business. And then the last chapter or the most recent chapter, shall I say, hopefully not the last one, and um, putting it all together, the last decade has been at LMAX. So typical turnaround job there. You know, it was, it was a startup back in the day, standard startup issues, too many people, some of the wrong people, um, spent too much money, hadn't spent enough time on sales and distribution, hadn't finished the product. So apart from that, it was all easy. Uh, but the last decade has been, you know, trying to narrow the focus, 
having a singular focus for the business, hopefully putting together some of what I learned in the previous two chapters, as I say, in banking, learning how to run a business. And we've had some success. So today, you know, we run five exchanges, trade about $30 billion a day. And I guess what we're here today to talk about most is probably Elmax Digital, which is the, the fifth of our exchanges and has been our fastest growing exchange to date. I want to, I want to get to Elmax Digital in a second, but uh, for our young listeners, because it's interesting, you, you, you talked about three different chapters, each taking a decade. Yeah. And I always tell young listeners an overnight success takes about 15 to 25 years. Yeah. And you and I both know that, David. But what is one of the core tenets of your business principles in terms of the way you try to create the culture of success in the organizations that you're running or a part of? Yeah, one of my favorite quotes of all time comes from one of your founding fathers over there, right? So it's persistence and energy conquers all things. And that's it. Look, you can't speak to the 20-something-year-old David Mercer. You just cannot because... Back then, you know, if you told me it would take a decade, you know, I'd move on. I expected everything to happen in six months and 12 months, but not everything works perfectly, but it's just that persistence and energy. So, you know, back to what we do here today, no one believed us 10 years ago, but I had a singular focus. We had a singular focus. I'm very lucky to have a management team and we just stuck at it. But make no mistake, it's a bit like investing in crypto today. There's a majority out there which is telling you you're wrong, that it's the wrong approach. So just having the persistence and energy to keep going. And don't get me wrong, you know, if you spot that you've taken a wrong term, it's okay, right? End it quick, right? So it's okay to succeed slowly. It's okay to um, succeed fast. Um, but guess what? It's also okay to fail quickly, right? Just don't fail slowly. So if you make a wrong turn, just come back on it. But that's it, just the persistence. And if sometimes it's the sheer bloody mindedness to, to stick at it. And I think if you have that, you go a long way. Listen, I've been, I've been there I, and, I, and I get it. You, you had an eureka moment somewhere where you said, okay, <laughs> you just pointed it out. And Neil Kashkari, who's a, a Fed president, he said this morning that 95% of crypto is garbage and uh, all this nonsense that he said this morning. Uh, but you've had a eureka moment. Describe the eureka moment. Describe why you're in crypto with LMAX. Yeah, I wish I was that prescient and I wish we were that prescient. I guess if we had been, we mightn't be here today, Anthony. You know, we may have all invested back in 09, 2010. Certainly when someone first mentioned Bitcoin to me in 2013. But I guess... It was towards the end of 2017. So you can call us latecomers if you like, but we have a work cut out building um, our own exchanges. Everything we do at LMAX is proprietary technology. So uh, all my FX exchanges run on that proprietary technology. And 2017, which was the first sort of retail tidal wave or parabolic growth that you saw in certainly the Bitcoin price. And suddenly... The same customers who traded FX with me, and these are the biggest banks in the world and the biggest proprietary trading firms in the world in Chicago, New York, London, and Amsterdam, you know, more than one of them knocked on my door and said, David, we need you. We need your technology. We need your proprietary technology in this space because we're making markets 
We're printing tickets all around the planet and all these retail platforms, but we need some industrial uh, grade institutional infrastructure so that we can exchange risk with like-minded participants. And actually, so no real eureka moment, but it was a case then of moving fast, acting on it, speaking to the right people at LMAX. I remember if you want a particular moment, I called uh, my COO, my CTO, my head of software development, uh, my risk officer into a boardroom. And I said, look, are we doing this or not? And more or less the way I pitched it was, find me a reason why not to do it. And the truth was we had the distribution, we had the liquidity, we had the technology. All we had to do was integrate with uh, a few blockchains. And to be frank, that took three to six months. And from field to fork, as they say, or from concept to delivery, we launched LMAX Digital within six months of that meeting. So um, that's when it happened. And I didn't even for one second think about failure. I guess I guess we never do. Because everything we had in the background, as I say, the distribution, the people, the technology, it was all ready. So if, if Bitcoin was going to work, if crypto was going to become a bona fide asset class, then we were going to be in the right place. And, you know, just today, just to fast forward a little bit, I know we'll get into this more and more detail later, but look, 40% of my customers also trade FX with me. So I knew I had that. I knew if this thing was here to stay, I knew that we had the customers and we had the, uh, the framework, the bedrock, if you like, for an institutional cryptocurrency exchange. Is it, is it here to stay? You know, crypto skeptics say that it has absolutely no real utility or no real benefit to the society. Warren Buffett said that it was rat poison. And then they asked him again. He said, no, it's rat poison squared. His older brother, the 97-year-old Charlie Munger, said it is the worst thing that's ever happened to the civilization. I mean, we've had some bad things happen to the civilization, but this was the worst. What is your reaction to all that, Dave? Oh, you know, I guess... If you've been in capital markets for a long time, you're always answering this question. You know, what good do you do you bring to the planet? Um, goes back to when I was in emerging markets in the late 90s. You know, what what value do you bring to those worldwide economies? Well, actually, uh, quite a lot, right? So we funneled a lot of cash there. But so look, there are people out there that will always criticize it. But you know, Bitcoin and crypto specifically, well. What have we got at the moment without it, right? We have a fiat system that looks, if it's not broken, it's severely damaged. And people are now starting to see it, you know, post-2008. And if you like now, post-2020 with the pandemic, people are starting to realize that the 100 bucks they had in their bank account doesn't get them quite so much as it did in 2019. And that's just a fact. You know, we live in this inflationary society where, um, governments are just printing, printing more and more of our cash. So, and you're earning nothing in the bank. So, I mean, I'm scratching my head, thinking, what would I do? You know, what, what do I do? People say to me, buy fine art, buy other assets, right? So, someone invented this new asset, and I quite like it because it's just maths, right? In that, you just solve maths equations, and that's it. And it's Guess what? Okay, if you want to call it digital gold, it's digital gold, right? But it's a finite supply of it. That seems intriguing. If nothing else, it's intriguing. If nothing else, it's a useful alternative to what we've now understood for the last 50 years, which is fiat. I mean, fiat, you know, the fiat dollar has only been around for 50 years. That's nothing. 
right? In the history of currency, in the history of markets, that's nothing, right? So we broke away from the gold standard 50 years ago. Was that the right thing to do? I don't know. Well, well this and Bitcoin is it's perhaps closer to that. So look, it's an alternative. Um, it gives you three things, I guess, you're looking for in a currency. It gives you a store of value. Discuss. I mean, is anything a store of value, really? Um, it gives you a medium of exchange, i.e. you will accept it from me. Not everyone will just yet, but more and more are accepting it. And it's a unit of account, right? So you and I certainly could go, could go anywhere and someone could price something up in Bitcoin and we'd get it, or Satoshi, and we'd get it. So it's a good alternative. And I think right now to the skeptics, it's if you're still skeptical, I probably can't persuade you. But let's I'm gonna give, give you another another way of thinking about it. Probably if you're an investor, you've probably got some Netflix in your stock portfolio. You've probably got some Tesla. You've probably got some JP Morgan. You might have some Spotify. Well, guess what? The market cap of Bitcoin is bigger than all of those. So you probably need to have some in your portfolio. You know, I'm not a maximalist. I'm not saying 100% at all. I'm not an evangelist. Ultimately, what we do is match buyers and sellers. But this is an asset class that today is worth somewhere around $2 trillion. So something close to Apple or Microsoft. So you're probably thinking, I need to have something in my portfolio just in case. And then we go back to the former arguments. Well, maybe it can replace, maybe it can become a part of capital markets going forward and part of our lives going forward. Maybe it can replace fiat, which as I say, is damaged. So I think it's a brilliant assessment of what you're saying. I'm going to tell you my eureka moment and then I want to get your reaction to it. Sure. Uh, uh, Mark Andreessen said, that this is a brilliant evolution of technology, the blockchain and assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum, because the first time in human history, we will be able to have a permissionless peer-to-peer transaction with people that we don't know, don't have to trust. Uh, And when we're sending money around the world now, we send it to a quote-unquote third party, a JP Morgan, a Citibank, that we trust, and then they send it on to the, the person that we're trying to send it to, to to create that exchange for goods and services. This is completely transformative. It truncates that, and it creates an amazing level of efficiency. And so if you study the history of money, it is it has all of the capabilities of money, the trusted network, uh, the uh, impregnability of the uh, blockchain. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, look, I love the theory. I mean, I guess we wouldn't be in it if um, if we didn't believe in that theory. And I think, look, everything, the world's going that way, Anthony, you know, peer-to-peer. If you mention peer-to-peer, that's the way the world's going with everything. And if you were designing your ideal ideal world, I, I, ideal scenario, everything we would do would be peer-to-peer. And you're seeing that, you know, the likes of eBay, I guess, got there first, right? And other, and other, other walks of life. So with currencies, with transactions, with asset transfer, with the payments between each other, it makes total sense. Don't get me wrong. You know, I'm a pragmatist 
And the evangelists will, will say, we can just go now peer to peer. We cannot, right? We can for a cup of coffee. Um, we can perhaps for the price of a car. We cannot for the value of your, your net worth. We cannot for the value of your house just yet. But the scientific experiments are in development. And, and I think we're going to get closer to that peer-to-peer permissionless network uh, that you so described. You know, your LMAX is focused on both crypto and FX. Do you see an increasing convergence between the two, crypto and FX? 100%. I mean, I'm, I'm impatient. I'm impatient. I want it to happen now. Um, so, in fact, we're going to launch our sixth exchange in Asia um, in Q4 this year. It'll be the first exchange we launch, which will have fiat currencies and crypto on the same exchange under the same or similar regulatory banner. So I think the partition wall between fiat and crypto will be knocked down within the next three to five years, for sure. And in many ways, it already is. But there's pros and cons. Neither are perfect. Okay, so if I look at FX, it's not perfect. I mean, actually, it's we, we've run hard to keep up with technology in foreign exchange over the last 20 years. In fact, I would say the FX industry, whilst it's been going for centuries, is really only 20 years old because that's the electronification of foreign exchange markets. So it's actually not far ahead of crypto. Now, crypto, I mean, just think, if you, if you landed on Mars or Mr. Musk takes us there and we create societies there, why are we going to close a stock market at 5 p.m. on a Friday? Um, why are we going to? Why are the banks going to be closed on a Saturday and Sunday? Uh, why can we not transfer money Saturday and Sunday? So, if nothing else, twenty-four-seven crypto markets—that's coming to a traditional capital market near you soon. So, at Elmax Group, you know, we launched weekend FX trading last year. Now, I'm not going to tell you we do much trading on a Saturday and Sunday, but we will. It's there because we see no reason why you can't trade euros and dollars and Mexican peso on a Saturday or Sunday. So that's fantastic. I think a lot of the technology evolution on the, on the blockchains that back up these cryptocurrencies is great. So look, clear payment, clearing, and settlement in traditional fiat is clunky, right? You've been around for a while, like myself, T plus two. I mean, what is all that about? Two, by the way, everyone, in case you're not familiar with it, is two days. Two days to move your dollars. Two days to move your pounds. David, it was five when you and I got in the industry, right? Remember there it was we go. Plus five. Then Crazy. It went to Everyone plus th- three, you know, and you, know, you, you were waiting Everyone's for the Everyone's thinking it's, we're talking two minutes here, Anthony. So, you know, still right. to this day, it's quite unbelievable, Anthony, as you well know. The easiest way, if you want to send some Aussie dollars to your relative in Sydney, Australia today, still the best way to do it is to go to the Bureau of Change and get on a plane. That's still quicker than you wiring them the money. That just can't be right. So, I mean, it's a long-winded way of saying, look, there's some great things in the crypto market that we can adapt and adopt in traditional capital markets. And likewise, dare I say it to the crypto evangelists out there, there are some bits of traditional capital markets like credit intermediation, like the infrastructure, like the market access provided that are useful that we could port over to crypto. And I think together, Anthony, I mean, look, my impatience is that I just want to trade Bitcoin and Ethereum the way we do euros and Mexican peso and just get on with it and create, 
you know, create a better ecosystem for both. Talk, talk about the infrastructure and the brokerage clearing, the storage of these cryptocurrencies for a second. Um, uh, you know, one of my skepticisms in the beginning was I was like, okay, my God, if I'm going to, Skybridge now has about $700 million of Bitcoin and Ethereum across our portfolio spectrum. But I, I didn't feel comfortable doing that a few years ago, even though I like the asset class. Yeah. I feel more comfortable today because I think I can store it safely. What are your thoughts there? You hit the nail on the head. I mean, the good thing is your investment thesis is correct. That was the that was the biggest challenge you had. And it's still the biggest challenge holding people back today. How do I store it? The biggest challenge for within Elmax Group of launching Elmax Digital was, wow, I haven't got a Chase. I haven't got a Barclays. I haven't got a Bank of America. Where do I park my clients' funds? There's no bank for this. There's no custodian. We actually built our own. We happen to think it's best in breed. But there are, you know, the one you use is, is very good. There's lots of other good custodians out. So that's a real challenge. And then if you come upstream from that, so first of all, where do you store it? Let's face it, the pension funds, the asset managers in the world, they're not storing it in the mattress. They're not running around um, with hard drives storing their private keys. They want to trust the custodian. But then you move upstream. So, okay, let's say we cross that one off, but we're not there yet. You know, there are a few good custodian solutions out there, but perhaps they're not all household names. And moreover, not everyone's using them, which would make it easier. Now, how do we plug those custodians onto exchanges so that you have ease of market access for that real money. I truly believe there's a wall of money. There's a wall of institutional money waiting to get in. But what they need is that storage you talk about, and then they need the credit intermediation. Now they say to me, you know, one of my better brokerage customers said to me, David, don't talk to me about private keys. Don't talk to me about wallets custodians and blockchains. I just want to trade Bitcoin the way I trade euros, right? The way I trade dollars. That's what I want to do. But they forget that behind the scenes, they're happy that some banks are priming them onto exchanges and are storing their asset for them. So we need um, more of those developments. I mean, to this day, if you're crypto only, if you suddenly became a crypto only fund, your banks may not open a bank account for you. They may not open a fiat bank account for you. That's how difficult it is. So we need more adoption there. I talk about the ABC of crypto. Everyone's heard it before probably, but adoption, banking, and credit. The adoption's coming. We need the bankers to get more involved. And then we need that credit intermediation so that there's, there's uh, less friction in the market. There's, there's a bit of friction on the on-ramp and off-ramp, if you like, into crypto at the moment. So uh, there's good projects underway. And I know you've engaged with a couple yourself and at Skybridge. Um, and hopefully there'll be more so that we can get this wall of institutional money into the crypto marketplace. You know, listen, I personally have been surprised at the general reluctancy. I actually think Larry Fink has been right when he's interviewed on CNBC David, he says he doesn't really have clients that have a super amount of interest in it right now. Um, I think the hedge fund managers do for sure, and sophisticated managers do. But when the day comes that a large-scale pension fund or public employees retirement system, I mean, look out, uh, those assets are ridiculously cheap and they're in short supply, uh, Bitcoin uh, specifically. Let me ask you this uh, question about an institutional exchange. 
and the retail exchanges like Coinbase. What would you say to our viewers and listeners the key differences are between retail and institutional exchanges? Oh, too many to mention, maybe. I mean, look, I, first of all, I take my hat off to those retail platforms out there. You know, I don't actually call them exchanges. They're effectively broker dealers and they have a, um, platforms to match. But they need to solve many, many issues for those customers. You know, can you send me a technology issues, right? Can you send me a statement? Can you show me the chart? Can you give me a price in a thousand coins? Um, can you give me some um, nice news feeds, interview feeds? So there's a real technology challenge there, right? So you mentioned the name there. They're very public. They're 56 million customers, uh, 5 million active. Now, if you imagine just 5% of them logging in at one time, that's a big technology challenge. Institutionally, I cater for 500 customers. That's it. And I'm happy there. I don't have to do the KYC, the onboarding that you do with all that, with all um, in the retail environment. But I process probably more orders a day than all of the retail exchanges put together. So for me, the requirements for my institutional customers, and they will be the largest banks in the world. Today, they are the largest proprietary trading firms in the world. Some of them are listed vehicles. What they care about is, does it work? Is it fast? That's it. I can't have a down second. I can't be slow. We process something around 4 billion orders a day. Our cancel and replace times are 80 microseconds. What does that mean, David? Well, there'd be about, uh, that's 12 times in a millisecond. That's 12,000 times in a second, right? And whether the market's going parabolic up or we're in that death spiral down that you saw at the start of the pandemic, the technology has to work. That's the challenge you need to solve. And you must be able to give them a price in size. So we operate a central limit order book in depth. And if you're, if I allow you to buy 20 million Bitcoin, $20 million worth of Bitcoin at any one time. I've got to have a, uh, I've got to have orders there so that you can sell 20 million Bitcoin. So those are the real challenges. It's really a tech challenge and a distribution challenge. And all we do, I mean, to, to, to give my, um, to show a bit of empathy to my retail counterparts, right? My challenges are somewhat less in terms of the questions people can ask me. All they want to see is what is the price uh, what is the price and what price can I buy and what price can I sell at? My job is just to process as many of those, the same message, as many of those a second as I can. Whereas, as I said before, with retail, it's basically horizontal, right, rather than vertical in that they could ask, you could ask one of your retail platforms any myriad of 100, 200 questions. I need to answer the same few questions all the time, 24-7. So really, it's it's a... Technology challenge, along with their infrastructure and credit challenge. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it over to my colleague, John Dorsey, but I have one last question for you before I do. What, what happens to old Wall Street? <laughs> well, you know, Anthony, I think old Wall Street, I love old Wall Street, right? We all thought, I like the city of London. You know, they say that the... The, the stock exchange down here is the oldest casino in the world, right? I, I think Wall Street, the floors have a great way of reinventing themselves, right? So big bang, 
You know, apparently there's going to be no traders left. Okay, so the traders, they left the floors and they went to the desks. Now, the new, well, most of these guys are now retired. So the new traders, they're now engineers, right? They now solve problems for a living. They now write algos. So look, you know, myself, sometimes we hanker back for those noisy days. I grew up on trading floors where people were smashing screens and, you know, a buddy of mine, we had a, we had a drawer full of spare phones because they'd smash a phone normally about once a month because the trade went against them. So it's changed, but the, uh, the skill set, the engineering ability, the problem-solving ability, the speed of mind is not just transferred into, into computers and algorithms. So I think uh, Wall Street has already partly reinvested, reinvented itself. Uh, and the big names, let's face it, Anthony, through our three decades, certainly that I've been around, the biggest names in banking, for example, are still the biggest names in banking. And they will evolve. Good companies... You know, they're great by choice. You know, they choose to be great. They choose to stay great and they change their focus and they have the customer there. So um, I think Wall Street's here to stay. And, you know, but guess what? There's always room for some new guys on Wall Street. You know, it was only 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you heard about HFTs and proprietary trading firms. They were the new guys on the block. Now you've got some real crypto engineers, um, scientists, you know, they're making a, they're putting their size 11s or size 15s in the United States, right? Squarely right bang in the middle of Wall Street. So I think it's going to evolve. I think it's going to get stronger and it'll probably be better than ever. Well, I appreciate the commentary a great deal, David. I, I do miss those days. I will confess that, but go ahead, John. The future is yours, John. Go ahead. All right. Fantastic, David. It's a pleasure to have you on. And thank you, Anthony, for seating the floor. My question for you, David, is about Bitcoin and Ethereum and then also you know, the growth of the ecosystem generally. You, know, you talked about how your entrant into the digital asset world was driven largely by demand and demand for institutional quality products. In terms of the demand that you're seeing related to Bitcoin versus the demand you're hearing related to Ethereum and even the emergence of other coins and protocols and digital assets, what's the percentage? You know, is it still Bitcoin that's dominating the conversation? Is Ethereum catching up at all to Bitcoin? You know, I'll talk about Skybridge for a second. We started as a Bitcoin only. We had full intention of, of only including Bitcoin in our portfolios, but have added Ethereum and we think that has staying power in the digital asset world. But for you, what's the interest level, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then other? So, look, I think it's clear in the institutional space, it's Bitcoin. So we're 70-30, Bitcoin, Ethereum. But there was days in June and July where Ethereum was 50-50. I've seen the stats like everyone else on the retail exchanges out there that Ethereum just overtook, just shaded Bitcoin. The truth is, as a trading product, Ethereum's too expensive and it's too slow. Bitcoin is the asset that traders want to trade today. But why Ethereum? Why is it starting that march? Well, actually, it's all about DeFi. Despite all the other, there's some other um, coins out there that are, are sort of seeding the DeFi experience, but Far and away, Ethereum's the winner on that at the moment. It's the utility coin. It's the on-ramp into DeFi. So I think everyone um, or a lot of people that are getting involved in DeFi are starting with Ethereum and switching it up 
into other tokens. But, you know, there's nothing that says it's going to hold that place forever. Um, I happen to think there's much better um, experiments out there than Ethereum. But you look, it's a bit like gold versus silver, or in my currency space, um, euro dollar versus dollar yen. So for now, I can't see Ethereum shading Bitcoin permanently. But whilst DeFi is growing and that's the accepted on-ramp, then yeah, it's going to have more of a share of wallet than it did, say, 18 months ago. Right. Anthony asked you the question about what you think is going to happen to old Wall Street. And I want to ask it in sort of a different way is that, you know, a lot of people that are looking from the outside who haven't fully bought into the idea of DeFi or the idea of this crypto uh, ecosystem that's growing, they, they view Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and other coins purely as speculative assets. Mm -hmm. But I think the entire DeFi movement has the potential to greater disrupt uh, sort of the traditional financial ecosystem relating to things like banking, as you talked about before, relating to things like prime brokerage. How do you think those types of business lines, things like prime brokerage, traditional banking functions are going to be different in a decade using blockchain, DeFi type of rails? They're going to have to catch up quick, John. It's simple as that. I mean, if you go to, you know, I'm, I'm no expert necessarily in DeFi. I would say that we contribute to the valuation within DeFi. For me, that's the key, right? Smart contracts, the key is the valuation of the assets on those smart contracts. So we started contributing to the, the PITH network for that. So that's the old world, if you like, capital markets moving into the new world. Um, so we contribute to that oracle. I think it's the way forward. But look, step back. What do I like about DeFi? The idea that we could be more capital efficient. The, the idea that we could move our balance sheets to the blockchain and large institutions can um, move their balance sheets to the blockchain. They can stake their assets that are basically gathering dust at the moment, like your dollars in your bank account or my pounds in my bank account. So to enable individuals and institutions to stake their assets. Um, Ultimately, when I look at it today, I look at DeFi, there's pl plenty more uses than this. But it seems that what's hot at the moment is effectively good old-fashioned stock borrowing and lending, right? They call it staking. They call it yield farming. But it's stock borrowing and lending. So wouldn't it be great if that market access was provided to more people and more institutions? And DeFi has the ability to do that. So I happen to think you will still have, I guess in DeFi world, we talk about nodes. So those credit intermediaries, be they prime brokers or banks or credit cards, they can be more disintermediated, right? There can be more of them. There can be more credit nodes around the place to enable this capital efficiency. So I think the incumbents need to move quickly if they want to hold on to that space. If not, you know, there's plenty of crypto projects out there that are looking to replace them or certainly supplant them when it comes to crypto. Right. As Anthony mentioned, Neil Kashkari, a Fed governor, you know, the, the former uh, Fed chairwoman, Janet Yellen, now the Treasury Secretary, has expressed very skeptical views about the crypto ecosystem. There's, you know, sort of old world, old Wall Street banking regulators across the U.S. and across the world, frankly, who have skeptical views about um, you know, the nature of 
trading that takes place in the digital asset ecosystem, they characterize it as money laundering or nefarious in some way. And so it's it's creating obstacles for you know unfettered growth of, of a lot of these industries. How do you view regulation, you know, in the UK, in the United States, in other jurisdictions that you do business? And what do you think they ultimately land on in terms of how they regulate DeFi and how they regulate uh, the digital asset world? It's yeah, so two things there, and everyone puts them in the same bucket, right? Regulation and AML. They are different things, but AML is part of regulation. I mean, I object highly to anybody that says that trading in crypto is money laundering or nefarious because, you know, when I launched Elmax Digital, I had to um, implement the fifth money laundering directive before it was even law, right, as part of my regulation. Now, what does that really mean? You just can't, you just KYC your customer, right? Um, you know, you have to ask them for the source of funds, source of wealth. That's just the way it is in capital markets. So there's no more risk of money laundering in the cryptos. Uh, if you're a regulated counterpart like ourselves in crypto, then if we're in fiat, in fact, we can go a step further. You know, I I don't KYC uh, the coin. I KYC you. Right? right. I need to know where you got your money from, source of funds, source of wealth. And if you don't give it to me, well, I can't open an account for you to trade fiat or crypto. And in crypto, I can go a step further. Right, I can use the tools that are out there and I can check where the coin has been before. I can't do that in dollars. I can't do that in pounds. So, you know, I think people sometimes when the, the politicians, they, they have a stage and they don't know enough and they haven't researched enough before they pontificate. It's a challenge. You know, there were people and they're being investigated right now who were letting you open an account with an email address. That's wrong. That's in breach of global AML guidance. Every country in the world has signed up to that global um, FATCA AML guidance, right? Only one country in the world isn't. You can probably guess what it is, right? Everyone has signed up and we all use it. You've got to give me nine pieces of paper to open an account with your lawyer, with your accountant, with your banker, with your broker. Now, Regulation. Again, let's get down off our soapboxes. It is right that we regulate and that we protect private investors. That's important. I happen to think you don't banning things doesn't protect it, but doing things as they're doing in Europe and the UK, like limiting leverage, it's entirely sensible. We do something in the UK under FCA guidance called a suitability test. Like, do you understand this product? And if it comes back and says, no, you don't, you can go off and do training courses to get up to speed so that this does become suitable. You know, do you understand leverage? Most people actually initially say no. And then you say, well, you know, have you ever bought a house? There you go. You've got some leverage in there because you didn't pay for it in cash, most of you. So that type of thing, suitability test, allowing people to protect themselves, protect their investors, I think protecting Private investors is important, and a lot of what you see in regulation is doing that, and that makes complete sense. Outlawing it doesn't work because what you then do is drive your own citizens offshore into the hands of people who don't have this stringent regulation and protection mechanism or protection blanket that we surround uh, the world, certainly in the UK and the United States, for example. So otherwise regulation in the wholesale environment, you know, we're all regulated. You know, we're highly regulated. 
Um, they just haven't quite got a framework yet for what is crypto, certainly in the US, is it currency, is it a security, is it a commodity? For me, it's definitely a currency. Um, but you know, some of them, some of the crypto assets, they could look like a security. So be careful when you're launching your token. If you pay dividends, for example, is there anything that resembles a security, you're going to come under SEC law. But there's the, the frameworks are there. So I think don't confuse the two. But generally, we are fans of regulation. I'm highly regulated, you know, as an MTF, as a broker by the FCA in the UK, in Gibraltar for digital, and in three or four other jurisdictions around the planet. We're a big believer. Normally, it protects private investors. And it gives us, the wholesale guys, the rules of engagement. Yeah, I mean, I think in the space, uh, the exchange space, you have people that started off as crypto native and are struggling to grapple with, you know, traditional regulation, AML type stuff. Uh, and you're seeing growing pains there. I'm not going to single anybody out, but you probably know the types of people that I'm talking about. And you have people like yourselves who are coming from an institutional background and responding to demand uh within the digital asset space. And I think, you know, one is certainly a better fit for institutional business, hence why you're growing so quickly uh, on the institutional side related to some of your competitors, I would imagine. Um, but the, the crypto ecosystem is growing rapidly, I think, by any measure, but it's often done sort of in, in uh, fits and starts and in bursts of, of sort of exponential adoption, both in terms of the price of coins and in terms of market penetration. As you look out over the next year, 24 months, what part of the cycle do you think we're in today as it relates to adoption, as it relates to price of something like Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, and other sort of DeFi protocols? And where do you think we'll be in that you know, one to two year time frame? Ah, short time frames, they're always tough, right? When you're commentating on anything. I was like five or 10, but look, genuinely on a longer time frame, call it a decade, we're just at the very start. I think any chart you grow in terms of number of you, you show in terms of number of users or value of any asset, it won't register. It'll be a flat line compared to what it's going to be 10 years from now. There's certainly a wave right now. So if you want a shorter time frame in the next couple of years, look, it's all I see is every day I open more accounts than I did in the corresponding day the previous month. And these are institutional accounts, right? I'm not in retail land. So I get more inquiries every day. Just three years ago, you know, I have 34 banks connected to LMAX Group Trading Foreign Exchange. We knocked on all of those doors three years ago. We launched LMAX Digital and everyone said, thanks, but no thanks, not now. Now 10 of them are taking my market data. Three have gone through conformance testing. They're not trading actively now. And all the proprietary trading firms that could move more quickly or have um, maybe smaller bureaucracy, they're all trading. So my biggest customers in foreign exchange are trading crypto. So that tells me it's coming. So look, there's $110 trillion of assets under management out there. If 5% was allocated to crypto, and that's the type of number you're talking about with pension funds and asset managers allocating on their portfolio 5%, then it means the value of crypto assets has to be $5 trillion. Today, it's one and a half to 2 trillion. That tells you where the price of crypto assets are gonna be. You know, and going right. back to some of the, the commentators you mentioned earlier, yeah, not everything's going to win. It's like .com. Not all these coins are going to win, right? Probably the bottom 95 to so that 95% number, the bottom 95 probably um, will go by the wayside and will fork into something else. But the top five, 
Um, one of the top five certainly will win out. And they will, the price you see in two years from now and five years from now will be parabolic compared to what it is today. Yeah, I mean, you had uh, Marcy Frost, who's the CEO of CalPERS, which is $500 billion um, asset owner that manages uh, retirement assets in California this morning on CNBC. She didn't say that CalPERS is imminently going to get involved in Bitcoin, but she says in five years, I wouldn't be surprised if CalPERS has exposure to Bitcoin. You know, it's something that I think there's social uh, proof that's being demonstrated within the crypto space. Almost every big bank now has some sort of solution for clients based on demand. A lot of what you experienced as you got into the space. And so I think that the stigma around Bitcoin is starting to fade away and, uh, you know, it, it could become exponential at a certain point. But David, it was a pleasure to have you on Salt Talks. We look forward to hopefully seeing you in September if, if uh, President Biden will, will let you in the door. Uh, we're, we're certainly trying to help you in that regard, but, but look forward to having you involved in Salt in person, as well as uh, sharing this Salt Talk with everyone. Anthony, you have a final word for David before we let him go? I, you know, I, the next time you come on, I want you to smash one of these phones. Okay. I want you to help me live <laughs> my youth. Okay. I, I feel like we haven't smashed the phone in 25 years, David. No, but absolutely. In, but it, I'll but bring in, a drawer. I'll bring a drawer. Yeah, please please now, bring, a, bring a phone to solve and let me smash one on the podium just so I can relive <laughs> what it was like in 1990 at Goldman Sachs in the J. Aaron <laughs> commodities area. Uh, you know, but, I think they made them the right size deliberately, so they just snapped in half. You know, <laughs> right, one, exactly. one slide, you know, they weren't made, Hollywood they weren't version, made 2020 technology. <laughs> listen, you you built an amazing business. Congratulations to you and your people and your team and culture. And we look forward to seeing you uh, in person at our event. Thank you both for your time today. Thanks, Anthony. Thanks, John. All the best. Thank you, David, again. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with David Mercer of LMAX Group. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them all on demand on our website at salt.org backslash talks and on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference, but we're also on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. We think this digital asset ecosystem is growing tremendously. Firms like LMAX doing a great job bringing institutional credibility to the space and driving adoption in that segment of the market as well. Uh, but on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.